I've realised as I'm reading this that there's four things to remember. Don't worry, this isn't going into one of those sketches where there'll be five and then six and then seven. Four things they need to remember. Here's the first one. If they were going to be resilient in their faith, the foundation on which they stand was that they remembered the awesome power of God. Now, that's why we started with those songs about creation, not simply because the children love to sing them, and it, it always seems to shame to me that the children are with us for those first 10 or 15 minutes, and we, we don't always uh, include those songs that they know so well, so we're going to try and do that a little bit more. Um, but actually, the fact that God is creator, God is almighty, God is the one who has made heaven and earth, is absolutely the safe place to stand when you're facing opposition, because that opposition felt very powerful. For them, it was the chief priests, the, uh, the, the rulers of their people. They were the people with all the power. They were the people with all the status. They were the people that everybody looked up to. They were the ones who effectively, metaphorically, sat on the throne. I wonder what it is that you are most likely to fear in your day-by-day -day life. It might not be a person. It often isn't. It might be the threat of running out of money. It might be the threat of illness. It might be the threat of what others think of you. It might be the threat of family breakdown. Those threats are no less real because they're not a person than they are if somebody's actually physically persecuting you. That threat basically says to you, effectively, I am more powerful than you. The fear is that you're going to be crushed under the weight of debt or sickness or a broken relationship. That sense that I'm not just not going to be able to carry this load. Uh, my son's just come back from doing his um, Silver Duke of Edinburgh Award um, expedition, and they have to carry these enormous rucksacks because they've got to be away for three days and two nights. They have to carry everything, their food, their uh, tents, and that sort of thing. And um, literally, when, when we'd packed his rucksack, or when he'd packed his rucksack, it was in the conservatory, and I, you know, I picked it up, and I went, there is just no way you're going to be able to carry this, let alone for three days and sort of 50 or 60 kilometres. Of course, he's a rugby-playing 16-year-old, and I'm a slightly elderly 47-year-old, and of course, he just went, it's fine, Dad, stop worrying. But that sense of being just crushed under the weight is what makes us fear. I think it's the heart of most fears. This thing, this person, this situation is bigger than me. So what does the early church do? It's very, very simple. You simply go, well, that may be big, Oh, God is bigger. I'm going to really show my age now. Do you remember Crocodile Dundee? That moment, you know which bit I mean, don't you? When he's, a, when he's threatened in the street by these hood, hoodlums with, with, with a little sort of flick knife. Give us your wallet or whatever it is. And he just reaches behind him and pulls out a machete and says, that's not a knife. I'm not going to try the accent. This is a knife. That sense of, well, you know, this thing I fear, that this persecution or this, this threat on me may be big, but our God is bigger. They use some of Psalm 2. This is why you need to know your Bible. Now, I say this to myself because I'm rubbish on knowing the Bible off by heart. I ought to be able to do it. I used to do lots of acting back in my teenagers, teenage and 20 years. I can learn scripts. I jolly well ought to be able to learn the scriptures. Jesus knew, would have known as a good Jewish boy, he'd have known the Psalms inside out, most of the Torah, first five books of the Bible inside out. So did the early Christians. If we don't know the Bible, we don't have that thing to pull out that says... Oh, that sounds big, but our God is bigger. Look what they do. They say, listen to Psalm 2. Sovereign God, 
You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Here's Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They remember who God is. They remember the sovereign power of God. When you are tempted to go soft on your following of Jesus, when you're tempted to cross your principles, go weak on your integrity, when you're tempted to fear something because it says, I'm big and you're never going to be able to carry me, you simply go, yeah, but this looks big, but my God is bigger. Why do the nations rage? They were then able to remember, of course, in verse 30, that the God who made the heaven and earth is also the God who's at work in our lives today. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. God is the God who is able to answer prayer, who is able to change people's lives, who is able to bring power and healing into our lives. One of the songs that we occasionally sing with the children here, Our God is a Great Big God. Adults could do with remembering that too. But secondly, they also remember that this persecution is no worse than what Jesus faced. This is the bit I missed until I was just reading, um, reading the, the Bible reading for you just now. Um, verse 27. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. There's that sense of, do you know, this thing that I'm facing that threatens my faith, it might be simply... Somebody at work, a colleague, who just sneers at our Christian faith. You know, they discover we go to church, and you can just see them thinking, oh, it's one of them. I thought you were an intelligent man or intelligent woman. You know, really? Okay. You know, oh, yeah, oh, it's another one of those goody-goodies. I mean, it, it, this stuff is quite weak, really. It's not terribly strong. They're not going to throw us in prison. They're not going to beat us, probably. But actually, it gets us in here, don't we? We don't like to be the weirdo. We don't like to be the oddity. We don't like to be the religious eccentric. Not on any possible level. Even as a vicar, I, you know, I'd, I'd quite like to be the cool vicar, not the overly spiritual religious vicar in my worst moments. Actually, we need to remember that this stuff that we face is tiny compared with what Jesus faced. Arrested, beaten lied about, tried, put to death. Our God is a great big God, yet he's also the God who hung on the cross, who gave everything for us. What we face in our day-by-day lives of following him, especially in this country, actually, he's tiny compared with what he faced. But it also means he knows how we feel. He knows what it feels like to have people turn against us. He knows what it feels like to be really tempted to go... You know, maybe today I just won't mention that I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, with this particular group of friends, maybe when they say to me, how was your weekend, Richard? I'll mention everything but that Sunday morning bit. I don't know whether anybody else has ever done that. It's harder for me because they know what I do on a Sunday because I'm paid for it. It's so easy, though. You know, if somebody says to you, was it a good weekend? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But I bet you anything that going, yeah, and I went to church isn't isn't necessarily part of that list because it feels a bit weird, a bit odd. We don't want to scare people. We don't want to wind them up. It's not a bad thing remembering that Jesus knows how that feels. He knows how tempting it is to just tiptoe around. 
How are we resilient in our faith? How do we keep going when things are against us? Firstly, we remember the greatness, the power, the glory of our creator God. Secondly, remember that Jesus has already gone there first, that he knows how it feels. But thirdly, we remember our job. Sounds an odd way to put it. But we remember what we're here for. This is what they did um, when they said in verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd been them and Peter and John had come back to me and said, we've got to tell you, things are really hotting up out there. We're getting a load of opposition. We've just been in jail. The threat is they're going to stone us or at least put us out of the city where we're going to lose our friends and our families and our homes and our jobs. What would your prayer be in in the face of that? My prayer would be, Lord, rescue us. Lord, keep us safe. Lord, set your hand against them and prevent them from carrying out their threats. Wouldn't it? I mean, surely we'd ask for help. When something bad is about to happen, we go, help, Lord. Yeah, they do that, but what they don't say is, help, Lord, and stop this from happening. What they actually say is, help us to be bolder. It's the absolute polar opposite of what we'd expect. We'd expect them to go, please stop us being persecuted. Whereas what they say is, help us not to be afraid. Why? Because they remember what their job is. They remember why they're still there. They remember why it is that Jesus didn't just scoop up all his followers and take them with him to go and be in heaven. What he actually did was he said, I'm going to go back and be with my father in heaven. This is Acts chapter one. And I'm giving you a job to do. Your job is to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit and then go And make disciples. That means make other people followers of Jesus. Tell other people what it is to follow me. Make a difference in your community, in your family, and wherever you work. In every way, bring my kingdom in. Make this world more ready for me. Live out and tell out the good news of Jesus. That's our job. I don't know whether you've ever watched um, children growing up playing rugby. Um, I've done that with my son over the years. And they start by playing touch rugby or tag rugby. So they've got a little sort of tag here and they're running with the ball. And rather than somebody absolutely flattening them aged five, although I've often thought five-year-olds would cope with that better than 15-year-olds in some ways. But anyway, rather than absolutely flattening one another, they simply grab a tag and then they have to stop and put the ball down or whatever it is. There comes a moment, and it's changed recently, so I don't know what age it is now, but there comes a moment when they go to what's called full contact um, when they start absolutely blathering one another with these, you know, these big tackles. And children vary in temperament. There are some children who just, it is just the bee's knees. I mean, tackling and being tackled is just the business. They love it. And there are some children where it takes them a year or two to get their head around, this is what's meant to be happening. And so it's like this. You know, there's a, sorry if I use some technical term, you know, there's a ruck forming on the ground, basically a pile of bodies with the ball somewhere in the middle. And, and they're, they're like... Okay, or there's somebody running at them with the ball and it's like, okay? And it's easy on the sidelines as an adult to sort of laugh or go, get in there, go on! But actually, when you want to protect yourself, you sort of forget what you're on the pitch for. It's like, why would I go near this hulking brute who's running at me with a ball? I'm just, after it's fine, after you. The interesting thing is when the penny drops and they get it, they get what they're on the pitch for, they get what the game is, actually, in some ways, it's safer Because when somebody's running at you with the ball in rugby and you're sort of all arms and legs and trying to get out of the way, you're actually much more likely to get injured. 
than when you've actually thought about what you're doing and you tackle properly. If you know what the game is, if you know what it is you're meant to be doing, it's the best place to be. The fact is, if we spend our Christian lives terrified of people thinking badly of us, fearful of what other people will say or how life will work out, not only do we miss the point of what life is meant to be, it's not actually a safer place to be. The best place we can be is to remember what our job is. Our job, this side of the life of the kingdom to come, is to live out and tell out the good news of Jesus. To live it out in our working lives, in our family lives, in our friendship lives, and to tell it out at every opportunity. It's what we've been made for. Go right back to Genesis chapter 1, if you want to think creation. Being made in the image of God was a bit of picture language, which, which was basically to say, you know, you know you pagan nations, you tend to make images, graven images of God, and you put them up on a pole and you say, that means this city or this town or this village belongs to this God. You sort of put them on a stick. And Genesis 1 says, no, 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 no. You don't make images of God like that. You bear the image of God. So you are meant to represent to the world in which you live the presence, the authority, the rightness, the love of God. That's been our purpose since we were absolutely made. We bear the image of God. We are to be to one another the reminder of the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the power of God. That's what you were made for. Anything else is standing around the edges doing this. It's much more fun to get stuck in. It's much better to live out what we've been made for. So how are they resilient in their faith? They remember the power, the authority, the sovereignty of God. They remember that Jesus has been through this first. They remember what their job is. And finally, they remember that they're not on their own. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now, before anybody panics at this point, this is not in itself a socialist agenda of a lack of personal possessions, okay? Uh, you may well want to make a case for that yourself. That's fine. That's for the political scientists amongst us. The Bible doesn't make a political point about possessions. In fact, it's very clear that but when it says no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, didn't mean they had no possessions. Uh, have a look at um, verse 34. From time to time, those who owned land and houses. People still owned land. People still owned houses. They would have been the very rich, actually, in that context, because most people had neither land nor houses. But those who owned land or houses, every now and again, when there was a need, they would sell them and bring the money and give it. So what this is talking about is a lack of grasping selfishness and greed and an overflowing sense of generosity. Why? Well, not simply because it's a good thing to do if you follow Jesus to be generous, though that is absolutely true. But primarily because, verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. They simply recognised they were in it together. They simply recognised that this journey of faith was one they did with other people. Now, we've heard a bit of that from Jen in her testimony. Jen didn't suddenly wake up one morning and think, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then do it on her own from then on. There was somebody who introduced her to Jesus. There was somebody else who led her a bit further along the way. It was in the company of other people, and it's always been in the company of other people. That's how you do faith. You absolutely will die as a Christian if you try and do it on your own. If you can go a whole month and you've never had a one-to-one -one conversation with somebody about faith, if you've never prayed with anybody, if there is nobody that you are open about your faith with, you're in real danger. Your faith will shrivel up and die. 
We were never built to do this on our own. We need other people. And I don't simply mean coming to church and sitting in pews at sort of a, a respectable distance from one another. I actually mean that we need other people to share the journey with us. It might be a prayer triplet, praying. I meet with a couple of guys who live up the road from me. We're at a similar stage of life, got similar age kids. We suddenly realised about a year ago that this was a bit ridiculous. We keep talking about all the stuff going on in our families. We should pray together. So every now and again, sometimes it's every two weeks, sometimes like just now it's been about every eight weeks because everybody's travelling and doing different things for work. We get together for breakfast about half seven in the morning. This is the only time that we can all meet in one place. We, we chat for about three quarters of an hour and we pray for about ten minutes. I'm not sure that's the work way around, but it's, you know, it's realistic. And we just pray. We share our faith together. We do the journey of life together. Even being part of a life group for five, six weeks being in a small group where we can talk about faith is so important. Finding a way where we don't do the journey of faith on our own will keep you resilient when the storms of life come. Otherwise, you're in real danger. You're going to get blown away. So where does their resilience come from? It comes from remembering the authority, the power, the majesty of Creator God. He's bigger than anything that can come your way. They remember that Jesus had gone there first. He understands how difficult it is sometimes to, to keep our head, to keep focused on him. They remember their job, what they've been put here for, that life is actually, at its core, meant to be living out and telling out the good news of Jesus. It's not just a bolt-on extra for religious enthusiasts. It's what we were made for. And finally, they remember that life, the life of faith isn't meant to be lived on our own. We need other people. Just like we do in every other part of life. We need other people. We're going to come to communion right now. And as we share communion, what we're reminded of is all of those things. But especially we're reminded of what Jesus has done for us. We remember that he was betrayed, that he was put to death, that he gave everything for us. We remember, actually, that this is really good news that we have to share and to live out.